podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we look at T20 batting and how players are preparing differently. And so we got on someone who talked to a lot of players and coaches and thought about it a lot. Tim Wegmore, also Cricket 2.0 and a sports writer than he's In this episode, we talk about bases and back hips and golf and swings and overload training and running a lot and Mumbai buses and sleep training. Can you tell me about Fabian Allen's base? That um, sounds rude. <laughs> it sounds like I'm asking something really weird. Yeah, so at this piece, we were basically looking at there's obviously lots on kind of bowlers and, you know, how they need to develop physically and stuff at T20, those demands. And this was looking at the other way for, for batsmen, which we don't really, really talk about. So I talked to Fabian Allen for it, and he talked about this exercise he's got from Dre, Andre Russell. And uh, basically what Andre Russell does is he bats in training with cones just in front and just behind his legs. And the idea is he has to hit the ball while not touching the cones forward or, or back. So it has to be very, very stable when he's hitting the ball. And, and it's a way of developing his, his base and flexibility. And Andre Russell told us to Fabian Allen. Fabian Allen does this a lot. It's one of his favorite drills. And Fabian Allen's also, he's very big on core strength. So he says a lot of going to the gym is actually a vanity project. Weights are not really that, that important for the batting in T20. But what's really important is having that strong base. So he, he regularly does uh, 400 push-ups in, in a day, which is uh, same. It's same. kind of exhausting to think about, actually. <laughs> Well, it, it, the interesting thing about that is I remember when that changed within West Indies cricket. So it wasn't that long ago that the West Indies players, the other players from other countries used to laugh at them because they all looked like they had beach bodies. And cricketers don't really have that. I remember Mitchell Johnson, when he retired, suddenly he got like this incredible, like different kind of physique. And he put a tweet up going, oh, it's so good. I've now got a beach body after years of having a cricket body. And specifically, and I, I've forgotten the name of this trainer, which is really going to annoy me, but he's a former SEAL from Barbados. And he was working with the West Indies team. And he was saying that they all were doing all these heavy weights. And I think it was Carlos Brathwaite and Chris Gale were the two. And he just said to them, you're strong anyway. You don't need to do that. What you need is core. And that must have been about five or six years ago now. And some players had already gone towards it before then. But it's quite clear that core strength has taken over from weights. So it's very rare now to go into a gym and see a player actually pumping up the way that Robin Utapa used to do. Yeah, I think if you're a weightlifter and you were trying to do a scoop it would be fucking freaking impossible because you, you couldn't you couldn't get down the time you couldn't move and you couldn't hit a wide yorker because you, you couldn't move so yeah a lot of these guys it's not the strength that they need to work on per se it's having that that core strength and that actually that flexibility so they can actually you can hit 360 from actually a wide range of different positions and that's been an interesting kind of cultural shift in, in sort of t20 training from kind of training to look good to look good on the beach to training to be what's most effective for actually your job which is to score up just a perfect example of all that is Chris Tremlett when he played in the uh, seniors tournament and uh, some of the young, other England players were like, look, he looks incredible, but we're not sure he's going to be able to field a ball because he won't be able to bend over and pick it up. Obviously, he's doing bodybuilding now. Anyone wants to look up those photos, they're more than welcome to. Something else that you talked about in this piece was how power comes from the back hip. You talked about a Liam Livingston story. Yes, and this is actually a good example of, of coaching getting better and because we're still only 18 years into T20. So actually, the kind of knowledge of it is still kind of in its infancy a little bit. But as we get coaches who are smarter, that will really help players a lot because they'll be able to say, 
this do this this particular thing. So what it, the story is that Liam Livingston, before the England Pakistan Twenty Series last summer, he was doing some work with Paul Collingwood and Marcus Truscottic, and they basically noticed his legs were a bit too far apart in his his stance, which kind of meant he was wasting some of his power and he wasn't kind of going through enough. And because you're meant to kind of use your back hip for power, but if you've got too too big a gap, that power is kind of going to be lost and you're not going to be able to transfer it into the ball very efficiently. And so he was losing his momentum from his back hip. And then by narrowing the gap between his legs, he's able to use that more efficiently. And as you see, he goes on an amazing spree at 13, 16, and 68 balls against Pakistan in the straight century. And he's actually got, he's almost like a, a tennis server where he kind of has the kind of weight on his back leg and then he explodes into it. And he actually, that six from Harris Ralph, that first one when it's, it's into the, the rugby league ground at Headingley, but actually he kind of, after he's hit it, he kind of carries on acceleration forward, which is it's something you'd probably see in baseball, but not traditionally in cricket. And that's quite a good example of that. Obviously, Livingston guy's got a lot of power, but it's, it's actually that coaching and that knowledge that's probably helping him to kind of use that in a more efficient way. And I think, I think that's going to be a really important trend going forward, that as you see coaches who are actually thinking through the T20 prism rather than this is what we always did in test cricket, blah, 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 that's going to really help, help batters to not actually get more powerful, but to use their power more efficiently, which I think is the key point, because there's very few players now, there's always no one who you think they cannot hit 90 metre, 100 metre six. It's how do you get yourself in a position to be able to do that as regularly as possible? And how can you be, be smarter with kind of using what you have? Yeah, uh, John O'Wells is... I think the best example of that looks like he cannot hit the ball anywhere, but he has actually hit sixes, even if he only hits one every 48 balls. And occasionally, when he you know gets in the right position, he still does it. There aren't many John O'Wells left in cricket, though. Most players can hit sixes far more regularly than that now. You talk a lot about Bryson DeChambeau, which I think is how you pronounce his name. Bryson DeChambeau, yeah. Chambeau, is it? I thought it was Chambeau. Yeah. Anyway, he's got a hell of a name, which if nothing else, I'm glad he made it to the top level of professional sports with such a name who's a golfer who basically, I can't think of a single cricketer that's ever sort of changed themselves and their training practices as much as he did. Even someone like Benny Howe still prepares like a normal cricketer. He just has different deliveries. Whereas basically he changed his body just to make himself from a normal golfer into a power golfer, which wasn't really a thing before. Yeah, so he gained 40 pounds in nine months. So he was actually trying to, he was starting this before COVID happened and then COVID happened. He's like, I might as, well, might as well use this time. This is actually, this is quite, this is kind of handy because um, you can, you can gain weight in a way that you didn't have to, to practice golf all the time. And then he increases his, his drive, his average drive from 302 yards, to 322 yards in the following year. So that's a massive, massive increase, the highest ever. And he goes on to win a major of the US Open for the, for the first time ever. And actually he, he's little, he dipped a bit this year, but there was kind of worry that he'd, kind of hacked golf and he kind of ruined golf with this but he'd, he'd really he'd found a way to just hit his drives a lot further which clearly is a huge a huge advantage um while actually the rest of his game was was just as good and this is actually kind of a good example of what, what's possible and of course part of that thinking is is not just about your 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 when you when you middle the ball it going for six it's also if you're stronger and more powerful there's more chance of a not middle ball going going for six which obviously gives you a massive advantage you don't even need to hit a perfect shot and you still get the best outcome reverse swing is one of the most incredible parts of our game but it doesn't happen by accident it comes from a team effort where each and every member has a job to prepare the ball as well as they can and then through that group effort they can get that ball to move gracefully through the air and you know all this because you're a smart cricket fan and yet you go out on the field to play with your balls in disarray. If you treat your pubic hair in a shoddy manner, you won't be able to pick up as many wickets as you'd like. But Manscaped have the invention for you. The Lawn Mower 4.0, guaranteed to make your balls reverse. 
Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is as graceful as a cover drive, as efficient as a Yorker in the depth. And the Lawnmower 4.0 is a true all-rounder, none of that bits and pieces nonsense. So if you're desperate for a breakthrough with your pubic hair, try Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REDINCA. That's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com and use the code REDINCA. Let's get your balls going the other way. You talk to Julian Wood for the piece. So Julian Wood, for people who don't know, is a very controversial figure in cricket. In fact, he is very controversial. Yeah, yeah I don't think I've ever heard more negative stuff about a coach outside of maybe, I was going to say Ian Pond, but I don't even think that's fair. I think probably the most controversial figure, Julian Wood basically is what I would call a hitting coach. He doesn't really care about batting. He cares about swing speeds and all these sorts of things. Uh, he talked to you about overload training, which is something that's very big in baseball, which is basically using heavier bats and using heavier balls to overload your body. Yeah, he is a controversial figure. I think he's probably for a few reasons. A, cricket's not used to a figure like, like this, and there's always going to be this sort of distrust about outsiders and people who they've been doing their jobs the whole, you know, in the same old way, and they kind of resent this guy coming in. And B, some of his methods are a bit, a bit maverick and, and so on. And so we also, because there's not many hitting coaches, it's hard to evaluate how good one hitting coach is. But what's cool is he is, he is a trendsetter, and I think we'll see more of these guys in the future, but either way. But yeah, his, what he does with the bat, he, he basically gives his three extra kind of bats, which he gives players 20, 40, and 60% heavier. And he, he's trying to train them in hitting those. And the, the idea is, is very simple. It's overload training is if you practice harder than the exam in this case the, the cricket match the match itself will seem easier so if you can hit a ball at 90 miles an hour with this ridiculously heavy bat which is obviously hard to kind of wield in a nimble way well that means when you're hitting with your normal actual bat that suddenly seems a, a lot easier and that's one of his, his principles he also goes the other way with underload training which is basically when you use a ball that's a bit lighter and travels further and that's partly actually to kind of for the rhythm of swinging, it's also partly actually just a confidence thing that if you, hmm. you have this ball, you're absolutely smashing it. I think the psychological value of all this stuff is, is still quite interesting as well. Yeah, and you see this sort of stuff a lot. I mean, in baseball, you see batters with either like a ring around their bat swinging in practice, and golfers for years used to use two golf clubs before they would play a shot. So a lot of this stuff isn't particularly new. It's maybe just been a little bit more scientifically tested. And in Julian Wood's case, he's saying that there's almost two kinds of batting. There's batting and then there's hitting. And so what they're really trying to do is make sure that everyone has what that, those sort of fast hands and that incredible swing plane of someone like Andre Russell. Yeah, well, he argues that we won't really get the full benefits until you know counties in England, states in Australia, states in India, they rather than saying, you're in our academy, they actually have a red ball academy and a white ball academy. And you get that complete spin. I that's quite a controversial idea because it's also the kind of ideas you need the fundamentals of batting and then you develop and then you specialise. But yeah, he certainly thinks all of coaching is based around have you got a good forward defence? Can you, can you kind of nudge a single through the couples or whatever? And he said, no, we need to think in a different way. You, you kind of learn it here. And if you, if you have that, kind of that, that's maybe all you need, you know. I mean, forward defence in T20, uh, yeah, it's kind of nice to have, but unless you're, I mean, T20 World Cup, you probably do need it on these pitches against these boulders, but you can get be a very good T20 player without being able to play the forward defence, which is kind of nuts to think about. Well, I mean, the forward defence almost doesn't exist realistically that much in cricket. There aren't that many players who actually, against 90 miles an hour, can plant on the front foot and not get their pad in the way anymore with DRS. So, I mean, the shot is going away. I remember Stephen Fleming said years ago that what you really want to do is find a player who can attack and you can teach them how to defend on the back of that, which is, I think there are a lot of more coaches coming through now who feel that way. I think that 
if you are facing Rashid Khan and you are facing Shaheen Afridi, you'd need some batting skills to go with your hitting skills. But I think we also underestimate, you know, guys like Andre Russell and, and Kyron Pollard who actually have a lot of batting skills. But then when they just need to sit, stand there and hit, they can. But what you might get is that, you know, the difference of someone like Asif Ali, who is probably never going to be able to actually bat, but he can hit, what, four sixes and seven balls, which is also quite handy, I hear. Rajasthan do some interesting drills. I mean, we're talking about stability through Fabian Allen. And Rajasthan do some interesting drills about like almost trying to get their players off balance. Yeah, so I spoke with uh, John Buster, who's worked Rajasthan all the way since 2008. And yeah, they do some kind of odd things, basically try, trying to practice hitting when you're overbalanced and stuff. And again, it, it, it's all based on the kind of premise of your core is, is what matters and kind of resist, uh, running into resistance bands and kind of dumping and hopping on one leg. And the idea is, is actually kind of priming you to cope with being unstable and being able to hit from a very kind of imperfect position. And actually that buys you, you know, again, if you're late to see that there's a wide, a wide Yorker and you thought it, you thought it was going to be a bit straighter, well, maybe you can still improvise and still you can get a, get a, get a boundary. So that's all kind of interesting okay. stuff that's, that's being done. Did you talk to any of the batters who would use that method or? In terms of that training? Yeah, yeah. Just because I reckon I've heard of people discussing that before, but I don't know if I've ever heard a batter say whether they felt that was useful or not. So I know it's so different, but Mumbai, they talked about Hardik Pandya, and he does a lot of stuff with heavier bats and weighted balls, for example. So that's, that's kind of prominent player who, who is using it. I think it's Colin Ingram does a lot of, of this sort of stuff as well. He has a, apparently has a kind of it's several weighted and heavier balls, which he, he kind of takes around with him and hits as well. So yeah, it's being used, and I think obviously it's individual as well. So I talked with Liam Livingston, and he was like, actually, I mainly just do range hitting and, and hit, but he's very big on stability and core strength on that side, but he doesn't kind of necessarily bite into the this other stuff that's, that's being done, the overload and unload stuff, which is a, yeah, a bit funky and a bit more, more controversial. So I think there's obviously there's, there's different ways of doing it, and it's not like you need to do this, this one thing and you'll be able to be amazing power hit. It's a lot more kind of individual and complex than that. I actually want to talk about range hitting. Range hitting is really interesting. So I interviewed Ricky Ponting a few years ago about the changes in ODI cricket because Ricky Ponting was one of the first players who came into ODI cricket thinking it was a serious sport and then got really good at it and obviously dominated the sport. So I basically interviewed him on all the different players. So he didn't see much of Jarvid me and Dad, but obviously Dean Jones was the person he based his career on. Then there was, you know, Michael Bevan and Sanat J. Saria. Like he was there for all of those big things. And I was asking him, like, what was the time when he realized it was becoming more about hitting than, than anything else? And it was that I'm pretty sure it was 99 World Cup. They turned up for a training session, the Australian team, and they went out and Lance Klusner was out on the pitch doing rain shitting. And they'd never seen anything like it before. And the Australian players are just sitting there watching Lance Clouseau going, oh, this sport is changing. Like, uh, things are changing. So it, it's really, you know, that's a long time ago. And range hitting really doesn't become a big thing. I reckon most of the team still weren't doing it at the 2012 World Cup because I remember Chris Gale did it and we filmed it for Crick Info. And he was doing it on this small ground. It was in Sri Lanka. And he was trying to clear a grandstand. And like, there were all these roads there and we were thinking, someone's going to die. He's just going to hit someone on this road. And he was purposely, they had all these metal roofs and you could see him trying to hit the metal roofs, which were 70, 80, 90, 100 meters away. And he was getting them, of course, because it's Chris Gale and someone was tossing the ball down. But it's interesting how some of these things have been around for a long time, but it's taken the players a little bit longer to commit to them. The other thing that you talk about here, which I find really interesting, is the 
different kind of body that you now need to be a test player than a T20 player? Yeah, so again, we've never really kind of thought about what goes into, we always think, you know, if you're a good batsman, you're a good batsman, but the demands are really, really different. So it's actually mainly cricket Australia, which is probably unsurprising given they've generally been at or kind of near the, the forefront of kind of sports science and cricket. So there was an interesting study from them running the big bass in Sheffield Field, and it's basically high-intensity sprint, which is 24 kilometres an hour or more, over twice as frequent in T20 as in, in first-class cricket. And there was a cricket a study from Queensland cricket as well, um, and they found that you only cover 29 metres per minute in first-class, but 62 in T20s. And interestingly, actually, probably what kind of surprising in some ways is that they analysed it for keepers, fast bowlers, spinners, batters, and they found for batters it was actually the, the biggest physical difference in terms of how much they were covering and stuff and, and the kind of sprinting and stuff. So actually the, the demands seem to be more different for batters than for other types of players, which I certainly wouldn't kind of necessarily assume. You looked at a Sanju Sampson innings that went through the Rajasthan team where he made, was it 50 or 60 and he didn't hit many boundaries and he ran 10 kilometers. The next game he went out for nothing and ran five kilometers. Like there's a big jump up if you make runs, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting for teams becoming aware of this and actually that should have an impact on fielding positions as well. Because A, if you're fielding first and you've got especially a kind of an anchorish player who's going to run a lot of singles and twos, you don't want them running a lot because they can be exhausted by the time it takes their turn to bat. And equally, if you're batting first and a guy gets 70 or 80, well, then you need to think about what's the best fielding position for them, which generally is going to be close in because they're not running as much. But actually, even that has dangers because that's a position where if they're a bit slower, that's, that could be potentially turning five gobbles into, into singles over the course of minutes. So, yeah, that, that's one of the real things. And, and it's also, it's a kind of, you need high speed and you need high endurance. So it, it's, it's really brutal. It's probably like being a, a top tennis player where you need to be able to last for potentially four or five hours and also do all the sprinting as well. So T20 is, is hugely physically, physically demanding. If you just have the exposeness, not the endurance, well, that's not going to get you very far either. So you need to be actually a very impressive all-round athlete. And yeah, there was these tests that, 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 that Rajasthan did of how fast their players run and Josh Butler running between the wickets. Uh, ran the equivalent of 33 kilometers per hour. Um, and if you kind of extrapolate that, that's the equivalent of doing 100 meters in 10.9 seconds. The same bolt record is 9.58. So, and that's with, obviously, Josh Bright's doing that with pads as well. Obviously, he's not doing 100 meters, but the point is that cricketers are now serious, serious athletes. And I think we still think, obviously, you still find the odds, you know, people find an image of Raheem Cornwall and they say, this shows that, you know, cricket is a joke, you don't need to be fit. And it's, it's really not, not true at all. Like, the demands are really, really big now. And, and that's something I never thought about, actually, was how long does it take to run a two? And, yeah, the top team, you know, interesting teams, Mumbai and Rajasthan, they're, they're testing this. So Mumbai said the elite time to run a two is, is six seconds as a striking batter. And for a non-striker, it's 5.5 seconds, which actually, you know, we talk about man-cadding and stuff. But, actually, yeah, that 0.5 seconds is, is really important. Yeah. Um, and basically, you don't, you're never going to run out for a two if the ball comes back in in more than 6.2 seconds. So this is really, really tough, really, really intense. And, and actually, we're seeing, so Paul Chapman, he talks about how actually they now do a lot of work with players, which is probably long overdue on actually turning for runs and stuff, and how to basically, if you maintain a low body position as you guide in, in your bat, that gives you, and then you decelerate as late as possible, that, that seems to be the, the best way to kind of run, run your bat in and, and flip back. But even this uh, 20 World Cup, we've seen a number of one-run short and stuff, so yeah, players not, not always doing this properly. So this is really, really, really big, big thing as well, um, which again, we probably haven't really thought about. 
Well, I reckon I wrote about running speeds between the wickets something like 10 years ago, like very early on in my career, because it was really quite obvious that that was something that you needed to know. Like you needed to know who was quick and who wasn't. And it really, Nathan Lehman was one of the first people who told me that England had really started doing it. I've got a feeling that Mark Wood might be their fastest over a two or he's in their top two or three. But yeah, Stokes and Butler and Bairstow were all on that list as well, obviously, you know, very, very fast. But it's incredible to me that even to this day, teams don't seem to train players how to run between wickets. There's lots of like micro things within cricket that like I always think, why a bowl is not trained on court and bowls. Like it's a really important thing. And not just court and bowl, because it won't they won't all be catches, but you know, how to field and these days probably how to dodge the ball as well in some situations. And it's like there are lots of little micro things that cricket is just getting to now, where I think that people in that 60s and 70s probably on occasions were training and, and were working on some of these things, but it's never become wide practice. And the point is, if, we, if we're recording and testing all of these, this actually helps teams to be more efficient in how they're, they're assembling. There's not much point, and that you see this quite a lot, where you have a really, really fast runner with maybe the slowest runner in your team, and it's like, well, you're not getting any of the benefit from this guy, actually, especially in the middle overs. If you want to pair up two of your fastest guys together, that's really a more efficient way of doing things. If the batsmen are kind of equally good in other ways, then actually it should be that running speed between the wickets. That should be a big part of how you assemble your, your batting order. Otherwise, you just have this fast eye and you're not making the most of it. And so it's pointless. And that's because it's being wasted. I think that's something that I think people don't really think about, but that's, they really should be thinking about that. Well, weirdly enough, we had this. My first job was at Lucia. You had Colmore and Dave Warner opening together, which is pretty much York and G. Exactly. So we, we knew that we had to use Cornwall up the order. And we had a sit down with David Warner. And um, I can't remember who was in the meeting, but Pollard might have been there. But Warner was there and Brad Hodge was there. And I said, we think we should open with Cornwall. And Warner was like, yeah. Andre Fletcher might have been there as well because he was the other opener. And they were both like, yeah. And I said, but the problem is that, Davey, we know that you get started in your innings by twos and threes, right? So if we put Cornwall at the top, how is that going to affect you? You're going to have to think about your batting differently. And I think in the end, we might have actually gone with Fletcher and Cornwall for that reason, because Fletcher was a more of a boundary hitter than Warner was in the first few overs. And that allowed us to do that. But we had to have that conversation with David Warner, because otherwise, the first game he's out there... Yeah, he's getting run out. Yeah, Exactly. And, and when you talk about different kinds of... This is something I find really, really interesting. So when people say, oh, it's not a fitness game and all this, and they put up a picture of Raheem Cornwall, Raheem Cornwall is such a phenomenal physical athlete that he got a late call up to the NFL, what, two or three years ago to be whatever it was, the blocker, one of the people that hits people in the NFL, despite the fact he'd never played that sport before. He's an incredible athlete, but all of his athleticism is a completely different kind of athleticism to Joe Roots, right? You know, he's not an endurance athlete, but for about four seconds, he actually does move quick for a couple of steps as well, a bit like Jesse Ryder used to, but over the... He's not going to run you twos and threes. No. He's not going to give you a two in six seconds, right? But the power athlete, and that's the thing that's really interesting, because I think what we're finding now is that you need a different physicality for batting in different spots in the order. So I always think back to guys like Michael Lum and Robert Utapa, who did get really, really big and bulky, right? You probably only want them to score 30 or 15 at, at the top of the order, but you might want them to be batting with someone more like David Warner, who can run the whole game and still give you some power options. And then later on, you probably want Andre Russell type athletes who are not going to get you that many twos, but are going to clear sixes. So the physicality of batting positions might actually change. Yeah. So Paul Chapman, so he's a guy from Mumbai, strength and conditioning coach. 
and he thinks uh, batting positions will become more specialised from a physical perspective. So again, you might have your power hitters who can't necessarily run their twos particularly quickly. You know, at, at five, six, seven, you might in the middle order you have guys who you can run their twos in six seconds or less, and so on. And it's very hard to be able to, to do both because it's actually quite divergent physical demands. And cricket's just not not used to that. I mean, the physique to be a good batsman in Test cricket is no different whether you're an opener or a number seven, really. Like, mm. The, the kind of fundamental physique you need just does not change at all. Whereas for T20, it changes massively. So, yeah, I think there's, there's scope for sort of specialization within specialization. And also what's interesting is whether I'm, I'm doing another piece on this, actually, but I've got a theory I think you might have as well, that the generally, if you look at the history of cricket, most of the elite batsmen have probably been slightly lower than average height. And I think as power becomes more important, I think the height of players seems to be trending upwards. And so therefore height, it's not like you, you will not be able to be a very good batsman if you are under six foot. But mm. actually, it's, it will now be a proper advantage. And we'll see that the proportion of top batters who are six foot plus will be it's going up. Well, let's pre-write that piece for you because there's a bunch of stuff on this. I think one of the reasons that tall batters faded a little bit more from the game, because if you go back, I don't, I don't think WG Grace was particularly short. So there had been taller batters, but... The bouncer, right, was the big thing. Always remember that this being talked about with Tom Moody. And Tom Moody, I've seen people. Yeah, uh, Moody's what, six foot seven? Yeah, six, 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 seven. I remember people yeah. t- talking with uh, Tom Moody recently and slagging him, going, oh, he's just an Australian who was a big hitter. It's like he made 77 first class hundreds. Like he was a very, very skillful batter. But the thing with Tom Moody was if you're six foot seven and you're a batter, how do you practice against the short ball until you're 20? Because chances are you aren't going to face bowlers who are quick enough consistently. You're hitting a load of long hops. Yeah. And so what happens is if you're James Taylor, you're basically facing bouncers from the age of 10 because anyone can probably bounce someone who's, I mean, what, would, what height would James Taylor be when he was 10? He probably would have been two foot four, right? It's easy to do that. And I remember even playing cricket in my level and we played on synthetic wickets where it was easier to bowl bounces. You had a lot of guys who were shorter who played the short ball better earlier on in their life just because they had to, because they were really short. And us taller kids, you know, like I was my full height at like 12. So for me, I had to learn to play the bouncer when I got to senior cricket, basically, because when I was in junior cricket, no one could ever get the ball up to my height. And I think that is a big part of it. Whereas in T20 cricket, that part has left, right? So you, you physically have that. Also, the other thing that you really wanted was before, I mean, we're now talking about people having this big, strong base, right? That wasn't what you wanted before. Look at Bradman. Bradman is forward, he's back, he's to the side, he's moving around the crease. He was really, really quick at moving around the crease. And my assumption is that someone like Hobbs would have been quite similar. There weren't many bigger, stronger hitters. Uh, you've got a couple of the West Indians. Wally Hammond is another one. They were often seen as more one-dimensional players. But as we go forward in cricket, one-dimensional batting for certain roles is going to be more important. So you're going to want to see more bigger, stronger people like that. But you can see in that thing, if you look at my Ben Dunk video, I show photos of early Ben Dunk and I show photos of late Ben Dunk. Like his physicality completely changes. He was always a bigger kid. Like he was never going to be a skinny guy. But the way he went from being that to being a big power athlete in his shoulders and his chest is quite clear that there's a change there. And you can see it all the way through. I mean, one of my favorite things is to put up a photo of Corey Anderson and to put up a photo of Don Bradman, right? It's not just height, it's size and physicality. And if you can't bowl bounces as much at these guys, it means that I think that's a big advantage for taller players. And also, as bowlers get to 90 miles an hour, you can't make two and three movements if you're a short guy. 
right? So you can only make one movement. So if you want to smother their length, being tall is much more important than being short because you can't get as far forward or you can't get as far back. So all those things that generally for short batters were an advantage before are now more of an advantage for tall batters in limited overs cricket. What will be interesting is in 10 years' time, whether test batters are still shorter than T20 batters. Yeah, so you talked about with pace bowling, and I agree with that. Some of the people I'm talking to, they talk about the importance of being able to drive on the up against the, mm. with, with the new ball, and they think if you're taller, it's easier to be able to, to do that. Interesting. But I think spinners, it's a very interesting kind of example of this. So imagine if you're kind of batting day five to save a test match. If you're a really tall guy and the pitch is ragging a bit, there's like a lot of bat, a lot, a lot of glove. There's men all, all around mm. the bat. There's, there's a lot that can go wrong. It, it, can, it can rear up. And actually defensive batting there, maybe being on the shorter side is an advantage. But if you're thinking, if you're trying to get down the, the pitch and, and, and smash a six, actually, if you're tall, that is an advantage. I think with, with spinners, I think being tall generally is an advantage um, in T20, and it's possibly the opposite in test. Yeah, I think if you look at the history of cricket, the other reason that so many batters were shorter is because the ball didn't bounce that much, right? The, the original pitches weren't as hard and as fast and the bowlers weren't as quick. So if you look at the original wicket keepers and the original batters, they're way shorter than even now. Now, sadly, we don't keep data on this like they do we in don't, American We don't keep sports. data very much for cricket. No, it is, it is quite sad. But if you look at the photos of the original wicket keepers, the reason they had to be so short was the ball quite often rolled along the ground, right? Whereas now you also need to be tall because you need to be able to take the flyers that go up and you need the wider wingspan, especially in T20 cricket, of a wicketkeeper because you want to be able to go sideways because there's never going to be any slips, right? So you need to be able to do that. So my guess is that the physicality of those positions have been changing probably even before we noticed it. And there, there are other things that you talked about there. Like there are, I think we now, it used to be that if you had a tall batter, they weren't as pushed the sort of stuff that you were talking about. But the other thing is, if you're a tall batter, it's only one step to get down to get past the rough sometimes, whereas a shorter batter might need two steps. But on the first day of a test, when the ball is bouncing more, you might actually want to be a taller batter to be able to handle that. Whereas on the fifth day, when the ball's keeping low, it's harder to go low if you're tall. So all those things are really interesting. And then with T20 cricket, Again, you're going to want flexible batters who can move around the crease. So eventually what we're going to be looking for is like Giannis Antetokounmpo type freaks who have the skills of shorter guys. But the unicorns, the, yeah. Yeah, the unicorns, but have the heights of someone else. It, it's a really, where it will go and the specialization of all this that you've been talking about there, will we get to the point of baseball where we have regular players who are in the team because of their running between wickets? Because I know of one already, Sachin Baby, at RCB, one of the reasons they got him in was they thought he was the best guy at getting singles and getting their guns back on strike. Which makes sense. But yeah, so th this theory at the moment, kind of working theory, is that being tall is most advantageous if you're an opener or you're a finisher. So you might get different, those physical profiles being different, and you have your kind of your more traditional kind of batters in the middle who aren't necessarily kind of really, really tall, and you're really tall, tall guys open or batters at six or seven. And so it's like, actually, you could get a guy who's 19, 20, and they could be like, you've always been a finisher, but actually, you're not tall enough. We need to remold you. If you want to be an elite cricketer, you've got to be a number four, and you've got to do, do this role. And it's kind of like, your height might begin to predict your role inside of it a little bit, which has never really happened before. I can't wait for undersized finishers to become a thing. I'm coining that now before it even comes up. There's a couple of other really interesting things here. So again, so St. Lucia was my first job. 
And other than learning that there are certain seats on the bus that you're not allowed to sit in because Roddy Estwick has already claimed it. And West Indians particularly, I've told, are very, very superstitious with which seat they have in the bus, which I found out very early on. The other thing that I had, we had a bit of a dodgy bus in one of the venues. And behind me in the seats was Mitchell McLennigan. I don't know how tall he would be, but 6'3", 6'4", fast bowler, obviously. Big guy. His legs just get into your back. Well, no, he kept saying, can you fix the chair? And we couldn't fix it. And so he basically had his legs up his ass the whole time that we were on a bus because my chair wasn't working correctly. And he wouldn't change chairs, of course, because why would he do that? Because this was his lucky chair as well. The reason I bring up all that is that Mumbai have taken out huge rows of chairs on their buses, especially on their longer journeys, because of this very fact that they're now thinking about the rehab of their players based on the trips to and from the game, which is not the case in a lot of these T20 leagues around the world, I can promise you. And again, it looks like it's quite a basic stuff, but yeah, so they were in uh, Abu Dhabi last year for the IPL, and a lot of their games obviously in Dubai and Sharjah, so a fair amount of, of travelling. And yeah, Paul, Paul Chapman, he basically realised that this time sometimes an hour and a half back to, to Abu Dhabi and it was dead time. In fact, obviously if you're not starting to recovery, you actually I mean you have to kind of it makes the recovery process then harder when you do start the recovery. So that this is not just dead time, it was actually it was damaging their players. So actually yeah, he, he took out every other row, so suddenly you've got leg room for Kieran Pollard and Hardik Pandya and so on. And the players also put on Norbatek boots, which are these uh they're quite hard to explain, but basically they're these sort of special boots which go all the way up and they use compressed air to massage a player's legs and to help their recovery. So they look a little bit like ski trousers and they keep these boots on for 40 minutes when they're in the coach. So suddenly, rather than the coach being a time when you, you get a bit stiff because you don't have enough leg room, mm. it's actually a time when you're used to help you have your recovery. And it's, you know, yeah, it's good for power. It's good for strength. It's also just good for not being injured and being fit on the park. And these are all quite... Some some ways quite basic things, but we're going to see this more and more. And um, but I've also been at the forefront in terms of giving players aura rings, which basically record their sleeping patterns. It's quite big in the in the NBA and other mm. US sports league, and we're seeing it more now. And um, but I think one of the really really interesting and really the, the, one of the big things I think for IPL teams to think about more in terms of advantage is even with the new 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 ten team season a little bit longer, you still have nine and a half months a year when the players are not with their IPL teams, they could be anywhere. And it's actually how you can use that time properly. Mumbai have started with their SPS, so Paul Chapman and his team, they try and talk with their really young Indian players, especially you know, every month, even even more than that. And actually getting a sense of what your players are doing when they're not with you is really, really important because you might do all this work on a player and then they come back a year later and they, they've kind of gone back and they've ignored everything. And um, so Mumbai, they, they try and get all their players, they've got a kind of, and Apple Microsoft Teams, and they try and get players to update this every 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 few weeks, which records things like how well 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 they're sleeping, soreness, and everything, and trying to get QPS data on their training and matches. And it's actually yeah, you can use that time when you're not with players in a productive way. That's a, a massive massive thing. I think generally T20 teams are not doing this anything 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 like enough. But it's the IPL teams who actually have the clout to be able to do that. Because in the small leagues, they're probably just not paying the players enough for the players to kind of to, to buy in. But if it's like if your IPL contract depends on you turning up for the following season, X, Y, and Z, you're meeting these criteria. Otherwise, you're not going to be in the team. That's actually when you're starting to get these really, really big improvements. It's almost going to be like you know, a preseason thing in football where if you turn up out of, out of shape, you know, you're in real trouble. I think that's clearly one of the, the big things for teams to kind of to get ahead of. The, the sleeping stuff's really interesting. As you said, the NBA teams have been on it for, I don't know, maybe four or five years now, and it's become a, a bigger deal in the NBA. I remember one player telling me that before he went into the IPL, he'd train himself because essentially what happens in those leagues is you actually have to change your sleeping patterns. Now, some of those games finish at like 12, right? At night. 
You've then got to go back. Everyone's got to have showers. There's probably some press. Decompress. Yep. So you're not getting back to the hotel before one in the morning. Then you've got the relaxing time afterwards, whether you want to drink, whether you want to party, whether you want to play video games, whatever. The very earliest most players are getting to bed is two and three in the morning. And that's the very earliest. In, in the CPL, it's famous for players not getting to bed before five at six and seven, because it's a bit more of a party league and you're in a fun place and you're in a resort and all those sorts of things. That is actually way different to what first-class cricketers do. It's completely fundamental. And I know that I don't think teams have ever worked it out, but I know that test teams have talked about the same sorts of things with when their players play the day-night tests as well, of having to learn how to sleep in different environments at different times. One of the things that I found when we were with St. Lucia is the breakfast was pointless. Some of our games were starting at (laughs) 9 o'clock at night, right? Because our owner wanted later night games because he wanted the games to be shown at breakfast time in India. So we were playing at 9 o'clock at night. So if if anything happens in that game, you're finishing at 12.31, right? Then by the time you get back, it's 2 a.m., any decompressing time means you're not going to bed before three or four. Breakfast in most hotels is over by 11 a.m. Yeah. Right? It's simple things like that that happen again and again. And teams are not always just working that out. And, and it's a hard thing to be able to work out, oh, okay, well, what you need is a breakfast chef who works a late shift at the hotel when the hotel breakfast is finished, just so that people have that option for them. Because what you really don't want is the players then getting up and going, oh, God, we'll just go out and get some takeaway. You don't really want them going out and getting crap food at that time. You want them to be able to eat really good food. That's the level of which I think the IPL teams are getting to, but the rest of T20 cricket is probably still a little bit removed from. But sleep is such an important part because we have completely different schedules for different formats of the game, but also the games that start at different times. Yeah, and actually on, on the dark point, it. Traditionally, like teams might have like, even though they had a set, they'd be like, this is what the team eats. But actually, even within batters, the sort of food you need, depending on your role, whether you're a power hitter or a guy hits a lot of twos, that's actually really different as well. So you need to have, Mumbai kind of, they had personal nutrition plans. I think there was, they're sort of not dogmatic in those, there's a bit of flexibility. But like, I was told that, that Kieran Pollard, you know, had a lot of, he lo- loves his fish with, with veg and, and, that, and a small amount of cod. And that, that sort of does all right for him. But uh, yeah, that, that, that's like a really big, big thing as well. And, and you see, I mean, you think in Premier League football, actually, some top players, they actually just pay for themselves to have their own chef who lives in with them. And actually, from the point of view of actually, it's a relatively small investment, probably worth $100,000 a year. So that, that's already paid for the chef. Just to go back on that and to finish up, the, it was um, Chris Gale and, and Carlos Brathwaite started traveling with their own personal trainers for the same reason, because they knew that it was a small investment for them, but it would, for their base price, how much money that would be worth long term. And it wasn't that any of the fitness trainers and any of the teams were a problem. It's just that they're at this team, then they're at this team, then they're at that team. So that they just needed that. Tim Wigmore, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Cheers, Jared. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Crickets.